Hey guys, and welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz, and you're listening to my podcast. That's how this works. And this is where I talk to cool filmmakers and actors, and in the case of this week, a very cool writer-director by the name of Nicholas Winding Refn, the director of such films as The Pusher Trilogy, more recently Drive, Valhalla Rising, Only God Forgives, and the new film The Neon Demon, a... uh, it's a cliche to say, but it's true. A divisive filmmaker. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, but first, a uh, big hello to Sammy on the intro. Hi, Sammy. Big hello right back to you, Josh. Um, we're so thrilled to have you back in the uh, in the country for two consecutive weeks. Wow, me too. Um, so, yeah. So, let's see. Uh, this week, I want to mention that I want to give a little preface to this movie because it is a movie that... Um, is worth talking about. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, it's called The Neon Demon. It stars Elle Fanning, uh, Keanu Reeves in a supporting role, um, and it's... God, how to describe this? Well, Jenna's in the office. Jenna saw the movie with me. Uh, Jenna, how would you describe the movie? Uh, jarring. Jarring, okay. She jar- said jarring, for those of you who <laughs> couldn't hear. She said jarring. You can tell the movie had an effect on her because she audibly well, said a word. Well, I when I saw Jenna this morning, she was... She like was a little shell shocked to it's be a, totally it's honest. That kind of a movie. So yeah. it's a, basically about um, a uh, a sixteen year old model uh, would be model that moves to L A. and kind of just goes down the rabbit hole and and basically a lot of really screwed up things happen. It's filled with. Um, uh, God, necrophilia, murder, cannibalism. You loved this movie. <laughs> I did. Um, um, it's filled with the most... All the staples of great cinema. Keanu's Keanu. great. Love Keanu Reeves. He's great so in this. So happy to, to see Keanu. He's used very well in it. Um, I, I no, Honestly, I've seen this movie twice. Oh, what really... a terrible way to describe a human being. <laughs> what? He's used very well He's used, in they, this. They used the receptacle that yeah. is Keanu Reeves. Um, but... Uh, I uh, know he's he's a mesmerizing kind of filmmaker. He's clearly whether you find his uh, work abrasive and some do, um, you can't quarrel with the fact that he knows how to craft very arresting images and sound and color. It's a, he, yeah. he's got all the ingredients to be a great filmmaker, and he and I think he is one. I um, love. I mean, everyone loves Drive. I who, think. Uh, yeah, Drive's got an incredible soundtrack, Drive. and it's beautiful. And yes. Oh my God! I just realized. What's up? Christina Hendricks. Yeah, she's in, in this one too. Yeah, is in both of them. He, she, he loves the Christina Hendricks. He talks, Who doesn't? He talks in this conversation as he's uh, talked before. Um, he wanted to make a Wonder Woman movie, and his stipulation was that Christina Hendricks had to play Wonder Woman. What idiot didn't let that happen? <laughs> I said to, I was saying this morning, I was like, I when I see Christina Hendricks, I feel the same way I feel when I see Beyonce. It's like an oh, wow. empowerment, like. She, like she's cool. She's only got, I think, one or two scenes in this, but the, she's pretty funny in it. Yeah. Um, and Christina Hendricks for everything. She's great. And uh, it, this is a really interesting conversation with like someone, again, whether you appreciate him or have a quarrel with some of his work, um, he is unabashedly, um, you know, a unique artist. And, and certainly certainly someone that like talks the talk and walks the walk and talks about his intent and, and his singularity of his vision and his quest to make great art. And it's all, you know, kind of heady stuff but really like um i think a, a different kind of a conversation than we often have here because usually frankly it, i'm uh, i have very banal stupid conversations because that's the kind of person i am right sammy yeah no absolutely um but uh but uh, i heard he did something cool at the beginning of the screening yeah, did you ask Oh, no, we didn't talk about that. The selfie moment kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, he, as he said, it's kind of a film about narcissism. So he asked everybody before the screening to take out their cell phones and just snap away. Um, but Did we, you? No. 
I, I disobeyed oh. <laughs> counterculture. Um, but no, this is a, a really cool conversation where we talk a lot about um, his work uh, all throughout his career, but also the t- temptations of Hollywood and doing big movies because he's been somebody that's been attached or, or at least talked about for big studio movies. Um, since making Drive, uh, we talk about him perhaps wanting to direct a James Bond movie. Interesting. Um, Sorry, Christina Hendricks or what? Uh, well, he said he's next wants to do a spy movie, and I suggested Christina, Christina Hendricks, and he said that's a really good idea. So if it happens, I get full credit. Mm, we'll see. Right? Yeah. Um, no, I, but that's I'm, how Hollywood works, isn't it? <laughs> we also talk, of course, about the Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Can't, can't help it. Did you, I wonder if him and Ryan talked about you. No, he would definitely not. Uh, he, he has no... Uh, no at least he didn't say that. I basically uh, apologized to Ryan through Nicholas no, in this conversation because it's never gonna happen because again. I think Ryan hates me. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying. But, but but Nicholas said he you would try a good to thing going for a while. I know it's, you have to be thankful for that. You know, I'll, I'll save the reason for this for the actual podcast. But you'll you'll hear why I feel like Ryan Gosling hates me. Um, but hopefully Nicholas will mend all the fences and things will be okay. I wouldn't hope for that, but I think, <laughs> you don't think that's in the cards for me. No. Okay. I think you and Ryan are at the end of your road. Oh. Um, we had a good run. Exactly. I think you need to be happy for what you did have with him. You know what I found out? Um, uh Well, not in this conversation, but when Drive came out, I think I've talked to you about this. Um, they sent out as a promotional item, one of the greatest promotional items ever for a film, the jacket yes. that Ryan wore in I it. And with a scorpion on the back. Um, there's a picture of me uh, uh, wearing said jacket that's horrifying. And... Um, and I thought it was gone, and I was ninety nine percent sure it was gone. I, I, I certainly didn't know where it was, but my wife the other day mentioned that she thinks she has it, and she's been like hiding it because she I think doesn't want me to ever wear it in public. She's she's so good to you. You don't deserve <laughs> that woman. And and if Jenny's listening, I'm asking her to let you wear the jacket in public and see what happens. Oh God! It's just yeah, but like feel it with just such confidence. Screams from children on the street. Yeah. What is that? More than usual. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I won't wear that jacket ever. Um, But it's good to have. Good to know I have it in case of emergency. Um, anything else to talk about? No, I'm I'm excited for this combo. Okay, me too. Uh, we've got a, a lot of cool stuff coming up. Um, already, I can mention this because it's uh, we taped it. Um, next week on the podcast, uh, a returning guest, the first th- uh, three Peter on wow. Happy Second Fused, uh, the amazing Anna Kendrick uh, on the show. So the wonderful, lovely Anna. Kendrick. Just in time for July Fourth, guys. Come back next week and you'll America's hear America's sweetheart. Exactly. Just in time for July Fourth. <laughs> exactly. Um, but for this week, enjoy. Uh, a very thoughtful, interesting um, filmmaker by the name of Nicholas Winding Refn. Uh, go check out the Neon Demon. It is in theaters, and uh, will be on. It's actually an Amazon film, so it'll be on Amazon in, in a bit too. If you're uh, just want to hold out and uh, get it for free on Amazon got Prime, it. got it. You got it. You got, got something. It. Do you know how Amazon works? Do I need to walk you through it? <laughs> well, I, yeah. Okay, we're gonna maybe. go do that. I'm gonna go teach uh, Sammy how the internet works. And we'll do Ask Jeeves tutorial <laughs> after that. Uh, here's Mr. Refn. Enjoy, guys. It's good to see you, sir. Thank you for coming by today. You're very welcome. Where do you rank in the in the in the process? Uh, this part of the process, the talking endlessly, dissecting yourself and dissecting the film. Is this is this this isn't why you make the movies? I know, but um, can it be enjoyable in some bizarre way? Yeah, because I love opinions. Mm-hmm. I love um, reactions. 
I was, uh, I've seen your film twice and I'm a great admirer of yours and a great admirer of this work. I really, uh, really very much enjoyed it. I'm still, you know, look, processing and I don't know if you asked me to explain a lot of it. Maybe I wouldn't be able to, but I can tell you I enjoyed it. Um, let me hear. Well, here's what I'm curious about. Like, I sat through last night at the kind of New York premiere or whatever, and I was kind of surprised by some of just, like, the reactions throughout the screening. Were, were you sitting in with no, the screening? No, no, no. I mean, Elle was, but I, I'm too I'm too scared. I, I, I tend to just hide. <laughs> I never watch my own films. Um, the only time I have done it is they make you do it at Cannes. Right, they make you sit through. Yeah, but otherwise, corporal punishment. I, <laughs> like for the sins you've done. Exactly. But also, I'm 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 the first one out the door. Do you? So do you ever like? Do you do like friends and family kind of screenings? You obviously, I assume you don't test screen your films, but do you show your films as work works in progress to no. people? I don't test my films. I don't show my films to anyone until they're done. And how do you know they're done? When I'm done. <laughs> Does that mean in terms of physical and mental exhaustion or knowing like this is as close to the, the piece of art that I had envisioned at the start? Or? I don't envision from the beginning because I know it's going to change. It's when I feel it's done. Yeah. It's done. And has that, has that process changed significantly since the beginning in terms of that instinctual kind of knowing it? Does that come with experience? Does it come yes. with? I've become a lot better at just trusting my instincts. Yeah. And well, because I mean, I would think part of this, I mean, are you the type of, of filmmaker, for instance, like I, as I've been like researching and getting ready to chat with you today, like I found no less than two or three like rankings of your films, right? Every time a new film comes out from a, a filmmaker that we appreciate, we see these kinds of things. Do you digest that stuff? Do you look at that stuff? Um, I mean, I'm aware of it. Uh Sometimes I indulge in it. Sometimes I don't. Um, it depends on the mood of the day. <laughs> how much you want to self-flagellate and tell? How much yeah, you it's to... like, do I need punishment or I need worshipping? <laughs> oh, what to choose from. Right. But I love that, you know, both elements are there because I always, you know, believe that um, the essence of creativity is a reaction. I do not believe that good and bad has any real value in creativity. Right. I think that um, we're certainly in the future very much beyond that limitation. Because, I mean, let's be honest, there's an audience for everything. Yes. So it's kind of like beyond of control. And because the digital revolution has allowed complete access to everything and everyone, there's no longer a gatekeeper. And I think that's wonderful because it really comes back to the act of creativity being everyone's ability. You it's know? A, well, it's interesting. I, I think you're you're right in terms of, um, you know, back in the day, I think if like a, a unique filmmaker wanted to kind of keep kind of elevating in status or whatever that means and getting bigger budgets, they would have to kind of like throw the ball down the middle a little bit more. Um, but I feel like you could stay in this lane forever. There's uh, there there's that Nicholas oh, yeah. Riffin audience waiting for you that appreciates your kind of thing. If you so choose, yeah. it's there. It's choose for your liking, and because it's digital revolution, it's forever. So maybe new people will come, um, and you know, and I think because for me, it's not about so much what you do anymore it's what you stand for mm -hmm. 
you know, I have children, I have, um, <clears throat> I think that's important that we teach our next generation that you don't have to fit in. You know, normality is not particularly interesting. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. But don't strive for it if you don't want to. And um, the only thing that can ever be taken away from you is your singularity. And if you want to be an artist, just remember that that's your only strength you really have. Yeah. Is your singularity. And never shy away. Take the praises, take the beatings, stand up and be proud. It feels like, I mean, looking at your work so far in your career, you really haven't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, do you think you've made a compromise at some point, like a significant compromise in terms of your artistic integrity? Um, I think I did it on one movie many years ago, and it failed miserably because of that. It was this, this was the, I confess, I've never seen the John Turturro. Yeah. Vehicle. Well, a lot of people haven't, so yeah. there's a good reason for that. <laughs> You're fine with me never seeing it, or are you? Well, I mean, you, you know, I mean, there are, I think, probably some good ideas in it, but I was, um, I, I was lucky to experience extreme failure when I was fairly young. So I was like 30, 29, 30. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I always thank God for that experience, even though at the time it was absolutely terrifying and and you know it like it was a snowball it went from you know a creative disaster to a financial disaster to my going bankrupt to me owing my bank a million dollars personally to us having our first child and like wow and but then like any dyslexia you turn it into a strength right. and you become a superhuman and this so the in terms of the chronology setting this uh, in the framework this was post pusher this is post the trilogy no or not? actually um i made the completed the pusher trilogy two and three because i needed the oh, money. to get the money yeah that's right so i paid off my debt by two and three so it was like starting over again but I started over again just a little bit wiser. Yeah. And I'm glad because then I realized that now I knew what not to do. Right. And that I would now make films purely based on not wanting to be accepted, but based on purely what I would like to see. Mm. So I became very self-indulgent, self-obsessed, self-absorbed, narcissistic, <laughs> And beautiful. Can that ever lead you down the wrong path, though? To be is there a, is it possible to be too self indulgent as no. a filmmaker? I don't think that you can ever go be too self indulgent because creativity is about narcissism, yeah, and self indulgent. It's like key factors, <laughs> ego, you name it. If you don't have those elements, I mean, we can go through the list of people, and you will very quickly see a very strong parallel to certain. Abilities, you know, you take everything from, you know, Picasso to uh, um, Andy Wall to Stanley Kubrick. To, I was going to uh, say, I mean, my favorite filmmakers, when I think of them, they're the meticulous people that kind of uh, 
had a singular vision that could not be compromised, whether it's Kubrick or De Palma has been up, talked yeah. about a lot lately. All right, great. Brian De Palma is a wonderful filmmaker. And I can certainly say that their self-indulgent, narcissistic uh, behavior, which is beautiful. Yeah. Because that's what creativity is. It's marrying your own vanity and your own needs to express. It's a very personal process. It's very intimate. But the more in love you are with yourself, the more you can fulfill some kind of childish fantasy of of an inner need to create. It's like yeah. an infant drawing, painting a picture. What, what I find fascinating uh, about you, though, though, is like, and I rewatched yesterday the um, documentary made by your wife and, uh, during the making of Only God Forgives. Is there? I feel like there's that push and pull, and this is probably for many artists mm. of of the ego, of the self confidence, of the believing in yourself. And yet, I mean, if you look at that documentary, you see you're filled with constant self doubt and misery and all of that. Um, they're two sides of the same coin, and it's impossible. I, I mean. You can't be human and not have one without the other, I guess. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we all go through times of self-doubt, self-loathing, patheticness, you know, um, love, hate, paranoia, anxiety, godlike status, paranoia, hatred, godlike status. It's like <laughs> closest thing men have to going into labor, I guess. <laughs> but it's... Um, it's part of the process. It's, it's important because, believe me, if you don't have humility in the process, then your narcissism doesn't really function. Yeah. Or your self-indulgent is not true. So I embrace all these, um, quote-unquote, uh, difficult sections of it, the process as a strength. But I need to extrovert it. Right. I need to relish in it in order for me to pass through it. And even as pathetic as I can get, the stronger it makes me. And the more um, clearer it becomes about singularity. But I have to live through the doubts right. and, and the hatred and the uh, and the and the mood swings, and it's not always easy for a family to live with that. Right. I mean, I've been with my wife for twenty years, so she kind of knows the process. Um, that now she decided to document it. <laughs> which are you, was are you like, happy that it's out there now for all the world to see? Um, yeah, I think if it inspires other people, I, I, I'm happy. I mean, I mean, I'm happy for her to kind of come to terms with our marriage and, and this is what it's like and if she wants to get away she needs to divorce me and I didn't know that was even on her mind so that was a bit like whoa of a shock but you know behind every great man there's always a greater woman I do believe that women are the most brilliantly invention God has ever created man was just a byproduct is there is there a point in every film that you've made thus far where you think it's an unmitigated disaster? That I've made? Yeah. Oh, by no means, no. No. That doesn't go hand in hand where there's a, there's, a, there's a low point where you're like, why did I even get into this and they can't be salvaged? I think the, the earlier movie that we talked about, yeah. I can look back and see why that was wrong for all the right reasons. Right. And right for all the wrong reasons. But since then, no. 
So, so let's talk about this one. Um, I'm curious, like, uh, again, process wise, and like you talked a little bit about how it's a, a bit fluid and you've talked to others about how meeting L really informed this as I, I assume your collaborations with people like Ryan Gosling have informed those films. But um, just in terms of like mechanics, like of getting a green light of getting a funding for a movie like this, like, is there is there a set? Was there the set script, the set pitch? Was there a pitch meeting where you had to kind of like show your wares? And what in a nutshell was that pitch? Well, it started a few years ago. Um, after I had done Valhalla Rising, I um, went to France because I knew that, or I had learned that a kind of average French movie can cost very easily between five or six million euros. And I went to Gaumont and Wildbunch, which are these two big French companies. And because uh, I had done uh, Valhalla Rising with Wildbunch and they had made a lot of money on it. And at that meeting, I told these two actually competing companies that were now joining forces around me that I would give them two movies for six. So I just needed three million euros per movie and then they would get two films. And then they were like, okay, um, how about this? How about we each put in a million euro in a hat? So one for Gaumont, one for Wild Bunch, one for you. And then we'll split 50-50. And I said, okay, now how about this? How about we do that? I'll write, produce, and direct, and um, we'll see you at the premiere. They were like, okay. So the first one uh, was going to be Only God Forgives. Then I went off and I did drive. A lot of things changed for me, thank God. But I'd never wanted to renegotiate the deal because they were very honorable when I made it originally because it had given me two films you know, automatic. Right. So, uh, only got because it became the first one. We shot that on $4 million. Uh, made a lot of money. And they had, there was a script, of course, that they had seen and, and greenlit and so forth. It changed a lot <laughs> in the process, but they learned that that was the whole essence of how I do things. Everything will change. Right. And uh, so when it got time to the Andeem and I went back and I said, I need a little bit more money because I want to shoot in Los Angeles, which is expensive. And I don't have a script and I don't have a cast. And they were like, okay. It's a good place to be in. So the I was collaborators have, yeah. Um, that I had the backing of, of Wild Bunch and Gaumont to basically go make the movie. And then when it was done, by that time I had sold the film to some key partners I have around Europe. Uh, especially France, UK, Italy, and Germany, which have been kind of uh, partnering up on my films in the last few years. So it's the same people I work with again and again and again. Right. Uh, but of course, the big game changer once the film was done, in the Undemon was Amazon uh, kind of came in and <clears throat> purchased the US rights. And that was just like a whole new avenue of possibilities, both because of the abilities, the strength, the ambitions they have, uh, the boldness. And Bob Bernie, who runs distribution, had done drive with me. So there was a very, there was a real safety sure. kind of atmosphere for me. Um, and uh, Roy and Jason, who kind of top brass, were like totally behind the film. 
and they had seen it, and they were like, we're in. And they gave me a very beautiful, long theatrical run. I was going to say, you still got three month, I think, three right? Three month theatrical run, and and uh, because I make experiences. And then at the same time, uh, a very strong streaming presence, which is forever. Yeah. So you get the best of both worlds. Hey guys, we've got a returning sponsor to Happy Sad Confused this week, and it is Casper, a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers, eliminated commission-driven, inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in a small, how-did-they-do-that-sized box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. An in-house team of engineers spends thousands of hours developing the Casper. They can springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature throughout the night. And let's talk about cost. Mattresses can often cost well over 1500 bucks, but Casper mattresses cost $500 for a twin-size mattress, $600 for a twin, $750 for a full, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king. Let's talk convenience. Buying a Casper mattress completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. So remember, obsessively engineered mattresses at a shockingly fair price. Great stuff. Time Magazine calls it one of the best inventions of 2015. In fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. And remember that risk-free trial, 100 nights, 100 nights rather, risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. And it's made in America. So right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash happy. The offer code is happy, H-A-P-P-Y. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, let's talk about a returning sponsor to Happy, Sad, Confused, one of our favorites, Blue Apron. Now guys, I've talked about this before. I don't cook. I'll be honest, I don't cook. I, I've never have. I, uh, I have very few skills in the kitchen besides eating. And I can personally attest that the few times that I've made significant strides have been thanks to Blue Aprons. I've I've tried Blue Apron. I've done Blue Apron. I've made delicious, amazing meals thanks to Blue Apron. That's all the selling you need to get for this one, guys, because that's a miracle. Um, Blue Apron is is this amazing service where for less than $10 a meal, uh, Blue Apron will deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And not just like run-of-the-mill, you know, boring dishes, like truly intricate dishes that you would get in a restaurant, stuff that I would never imagining, uh, imagine being able to make for myself. Blue Apron walks you through it step-by-step. Step. It's amazing. And Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. So whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron brings you the best. Let me just talk about some of the meals. Meals, for instance, this month that they're offering. I'm talking about creamy 
shrimp fettuccine with sauteed green beans and spinach, sweet chili chicken with Tinkerbell peppers, green beans and jasmine rice, or spiced steak and tomato avocado salad with creamy cone cabbage and red onion slaw. Guys, this is the real deal. This is real food that you can make for yourself for a really cheap price. So check out this week's menu. And you get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash happy, H-A-P-P-Y. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash happy. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now, had you... Or I don't know if you still are collaborating with them or not, but there was talk of the Barbarella for Amazon. Was that something that ever is still being developed, or is that did that come? Well, I don't. I don't own a Barbarella. It's owned by the estate, and I think Gaumont still has it. But I decided to be more interested in the Neon Demon, hmm. and plus there was other television things that caught my attention, where I actually enjoy a lot more. Um, designing it from the beginning got it as opposed to reappropriating something else that's yeah it became like barbarella was almost like you know it's like logan's run right certain things are better left untouched because you don't need to remake everything (laughs) Which is, I mean, uh, which is definitely a, a part of the conversation I want to talk to you about because, you know, your name, I mean, <laughs> as you say, drive changed things for you clearly. Absolutely. And and got you into a lot of rooms that you probably weren't being welcomed into. Oh, yeah. Um, and that there's got to be just tremendous amount of temptation. You're getting, you know, different kind of scale of budget that you can play with. Um, and I would think at some point you are going to take advantage of that and find the right fit. But like, well, why do you think, because like there've been things I know, like Barilla and, and uh, Equalizer and, you know, I could rattle off a few. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular reason that you think it hasn't happened yet where you found the right match for a big budget studio kind of project? Are they scared of you? Or are you scared of it? Is it just not fitting yet? Well, I mean, I love Hollywood and I love Hollywood movies. I mean, I love Michael Bay. I mean, he's, a very inspiring filmmaker, I feel, and I basically watch all his movies. Um, I think that... I believe that uh, since I'm the future, I'm much more interested in the creative high. And no money can outweigh creative control. Right. It just does not match. And the idea that you can wake up every morning, go to work, and do exactly what you want to do is beyond the idea of money. Right. It also becomes important in that it's something that we must always remember to give our children, which is, again, don't create your own world, create your own future. Right. You don't have to play the game in order to achieve what you want. And everything is not about money. Actually, it's the exact reverse. We should maybe stop talking so much about money and talk more about why we're we doing it. Because in a way, we'll probably start doing something else. Right. So I think that on this very lucrative ride of financial opportunities, 
There just hasn't been a project that's worth the trade-off. Right. Not that it hopefully won't happen. I mean, God, I'm, I, I'll take any meeting. I'll look at anything. I have no, by no means n not opposed to it. It's just hard when I'm just very, very happy with what I do. Right. You're spoiled in a way in having your own sandbox to, to play in. Yeah, and, at and least it's my sandbox. Yeah. You know, and, and I've been very lucky to do uh, some wonderful advertising. So it's like my day job. <laughs> right. <laughs> Pays the bills, et cetera. Uh, yeah. Which, my God, you need when, when you have a lot of people dependent on you. But, you know, you'll never know. I mean, uh, I'm off to L.A. on Saturday again. so <laughs> More meetings to come. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, like, from my perspective, it just as, as, a, as a lover of film and, frankly, a, a great admirer of your work, but also a great admirer of genre and, and spectacle, um, the notion of seeing you do, you know, like, I don't know how flippant you were at the time, but, like, you kind of talked a lot at the time about Wonder Woman, right? Um, did you ever get in the room with Warner Brothers about that? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't let you in? I don't know. They, they didn't let me in. <laughs> at one point, they, they did came to, come to me at a very early conversation. But, you know, I was like, I love Wonder Woman, but I would only do it with Christina Hendricks. <laughs> What about Bond? There was some talk, there were some rumors a while back that you were at least discussing with the, the Bond folks. <laughs> Did that get anywhere? How did these things come out? Um, I had some wonderful meetings with uh, the Broccolis and, um, and Daniel and Craig and, and so forth. Um, and I very much liked them. I love James Bond. I'm a huge, I'm actually, uh, I started watching them again with my eldest daughter. Oh, nice. Um, I'm I'm a big Sean Connery guy. I, what's your I, yeah? What's your favorite of the Bonds? Uh, well, <clears throat> I think that from Russia with Love, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, and and Doctor No, which is the first one. I mean, Terence uh, Young, who really created, you know, of course it's Ian Fleming's character, but Terence. But what Young, we know as the film Bond, that's, yeah, really yeah. created that the film Bond and the world of Bond. Yeah, it, it was a really great film director, and 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 he kind of defined this character that Sean Connery plays based on Fleming's books in a world that is so larger than life. But um, I love the first ones because they're very raw, like very, very almost counterculture in a way. Mm. Um, so I love the first two. I like Goldfinger because of just the absurdity of the story. <laughs> and... Uh, but I think probably my favorite one is in a Magic Secret Service. George Lazenby. Yeah. The, and of yeah. course, he is who he is. But as a movie, yeah. I mean, that was Peter Hunt, who had edited a lot of the films, came in and, and, and did that film as a director. And it's one of the best directed action films I've ever seen. Yeah. It's, 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 it's also the editorial choices are so bold at that time. Great music, great story unbelievably powerful ending right the wife the, uh, the oh death. my yeah. goodness yeah. it still stands today and i think it's probably my favorite james bond i was i always feel sad that um timothy dalton didn't get more to play with i actually thought living daylights was a solid one mm -hmm. license to kill probably a little less said the better but um 
he at least had a little bit of that danger, a little bit of that edge that we needed after Roger Moore. Well, and then live a little Live or Let Die, wasn't that the one with Roger Moore? The, yes. The one, the great music by Paul McCartney. Oh, that song by Paul McCartney yes. is just amazing. So did you, uh, just out of curiosity, do you even have a take or what, if I gave you the reins of Bond, what you would do with it at this point? Uh, I got ideas. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, we'll jump around a bit. Okay, let's sure. go back to De Neon Demon if we could. So um, do you, you have a teenage daughter now, right? I have two and okay. one of them just turned 13 so have you shown them the film no are you kidding <laughs> the only thing my eldest did was she wanted or insisted on walking the red carpet at Cannes this year so <laughs> can't deny him that that tree that's like, once in a I'm lifetime like, okay well, <laughs> if your mother says yes I guess it's yes <laughs> So you've said whether flippantly or, or seriously, this, this is kind of like you're, you know, there's a 16 year old girl in, in all of us. Um, where did this, you know, creative obsession and inspiration um, come from? Because, you know, you've talked about, you know, the hyper masculinity in a lot of your films. And this certainly is a little, again, the different side of the coin. Um, did this feel like fresh territory for you? Did this feel exciting in that way that you were getting a chance to kind of explore a whole new part of yourself oh absolutely i mean i uh it was it was a film that that you know i kind of already had knowing i was going to do it like after drive but in order to get to it i needed to go through only god forgives which partly is about emasculating crawling back to the womb of the mother right. in order to come out as a 16 year old girl <laughs> um so they're very you know thematic connections um, but you can kind of see the origin of it uh, originally I'd spoken with Christina Hendricks about it about some years ago and I said to her I really want to make a horror film next and she was like oh what's it about and I said I don't know yet but I know there's going to be blood and high heels <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, later I uh, I woke up one morning you know one of those mornings where you feel just terrible and I was like, uh, I might as well just accept it. I was never born beautiful. <laughs> but my wife is. And I wonder what that would be like. And then I saw my children, you know, how the social media <clears throat> is changing their perspective of the future in such a rapid way that we can't even follow up with it. And I thought, I want to make a horror film about beauty but it has to be about a teenage girl and that became like the conceptual idea and then I had the opening and then I came up with the ending and then I had the basis for structure and then that's how it begun it's funny like the, the even the notion the topic of like of beauty is something it's like even in my uh, profession of like talking to actors it's one of those things it's like hard to even discuss because you know I mean you know, you've worked with some of the most, you know, objectively gorgeous, genetically um, gifted human beings on the planet. You know, think of Ryan Gosling that, mm -hmm. and uh, L, etc. Um, but it's hard to talk about to their face. Like, can you? I, I don't even know how I would discuss with L or Ryan. Like, you are beautiful. Like that. That's that's a tough thing to even say to somebody. How do you process that? Because in their own mind, they probably process it differently. Um, well, actually, with L, it was kind of interesting because. Um um, when I started casting the movie, I was still writing the movie, 
and I'd been working on it for about a year and a half, script-wise, going through various phases of it, trying to figure out how to bring it into a singularity. Because it had all these themes I wanted to touch upon, all these scenes that I had written down, or I write on index cards. Um, so when it came to casting, I was I was like, well, maybe when I cast Jesse, the lead actor, or lead, the lead character, that will be able to kind of zone everything in. Because for me, it's always that, because it's the alter ego of me. Right. And because I shoot films in chronologically order, I approach everything in a very chronologically approach. So I was casting unknown actresses in LA because there was no one that I felt had the thing. So I'd gone unknown. And um, my wife one day says, uh, we could talk about Elle Fanning because um, um, she had seen a film of hers one of her, one of Elle's later films, mm -hmm. and Liv said she was like really really good in it. And uh, <clears throat> I spoke with the casting directors, who Nicole and Courtney, who were just like, absolutely wonderful. And they were like, oh yeah yeah, no, we know her. We you know they've worked with her before. So I was like, well, can you set up a meeting? And they set up a meeting. And prior to that, Elle's manager then sent me a photo shoot that Elle had done. And just like instinctually, I was just like, that's her. So much like uh, Nivola in the film, his uh, his reaction to her Basically, walk. it's the same exact same thing. <laughs> I, I did the Nivola. <laughs> Classic I Nivola. just gazed and I was like, I was in love. So I was like, agenda, get Elle Fanning. So Elle came over for a meeting and little did I know that she actually really wanted the part. So I thought I had to woo her. So I was selling it left, right, and center, but I was really boiling it down to saying, I, I would like to make a horror film about beauty. I would like to live out my fantasy of a 16-year-old girl, and it has to come through you. A, because you're 16, and you're the exact thing right. that this movie needs. And we would continue to talk a little bit about more about beauty and the digital revolution and because no, I have this theory that, you know, you and I are the generation where we saw the invention of the digital world. My children will remember when it really became a, a, a tool of normality. Right. But their generation will only see it as a real reality and not artificial because it would be so well perfected in our mind that it's no longer artificial. And El said... Ironically, she wanted to make a movie about beauty for her generation. So it was like a kindred spirit. Yeah. So during this conversation, I felt I still needed to kind of zero in on one pinpoint. Because we thought it was talk about narcissism. And I said, it's very interesting how when I grew up, it was a taboo. But with your generation, it's like a celebration. <laughs> And so I asked her, do you think you're beautiful? <laughs> and she would um, giggle first and take her time to answer. And I said, no, I'm seriously, do you think you're beautiful? And uh, she said, 
Yes. <laughs> and that moment, I knew exactly what the film was going to be about. Yeah. And all the years of developing was just like erased, like vanished. Because now it was so clear what it all came to. If, if I empowered you to schedule this film with a, another film, is that a, a lovely double feature on a, on a nice Sunday afternoon? Is there a film that you'd want to program this with outside of your own? <laughs> my, here, my, my initial vote after seeing it a couple of times, I thought, you know, this could go well with a Mulholland, Mulholland Drive, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Well, that's a great film. Um, what would I think? Um, I would probably say a great double feature with a neon D would be Pretty Woman. <laughs> it's a different era, but it's kind of similar topic in a way. Much more similar. Yeah. Is um. Well, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you're watching this film. I um. I'm just fascinated by, I think I alluded to this earlier, kind of like the, the reactions of a crowd. And there's so much of the narrative about you, and I'm sure you're sick of it, is like the divisiveness of Nicholas Reffin's films. If you could change the narrative about yourself, or are you, or are you okay with that kind of narrative, that it's so much of the first paragraph in most articles about you is that love him or hate him, he's whatever he is. Is that something that you kind of feel cool with, feel happy with, feel satisfied with, or would you want to change that kind of narrative? It makes me feel like a superstar. <laughs> because, again, I guess going back to the kind of filmmakers we were talking about, the Palma, Kubrick, all these people, their Andy films are Warhol, they're all know. debated till the end of time. Picasso, Henry Miller. They're provocations. They're, they're, yeah, they're, I, it, they're a singularity. Yeah. You know, it, it's, we got to, this good and bad thing, guys, get beyond it. Yeah. Enjoy the experience. Or not, but you're going to react to it, baby. <laughs> and that's what I'm here for. Uh, I want to mention a couple other of the actors in the film, because I, something I, uh, in watching it a second time, is, uh, I think it speaks well to what you've created here, is I I'd almost want to see films about a half dozen characters in this film. Um, you know, whether it's uh, um, Bella... Um, and Abby as these two supermodels from hell. Like, they're amazing. <laughs> they're just like, I mean, they're demons in their own right, right? Um, Keanu Reeves, who is a, king. an icon. And you, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you trade on that iconography or not, but like, undeniably, both times I've seen it, like, as soon as he steps into the frame, there's just like a, a moment from the audience of absorbing his presence. Um, is that something that's in your mind that like when you, you hire someone like Keanu Reeves, you know, he brings a certain kind of preconceived baggage is the wrong word, but there there's, there's weight to his, uh, his very presence. Oh, absolutely. It's a bit like having unknown. So like you can treat it in a different way. Right. So it was a lot about how do I introduce him and how does he want to be used in the film? I mean, Keanu is a wonderful actor, very smart, intelligent, sophisticated, very understands subtext. You can talk about hours about multiple meanings of words. So it's very inspiring to work with him. Yeah. And of course, who he is, is, you know, he's one of the few pop culture icons that we actually have around us. 
uh, I kept on every day quoting John Wick when I would see him. I would say, they always, what was it in that movie? They say, everyone keeps asking if I'm back. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm back. <laughs> and I just thought, that's fucking poetry, man. It's beautiful. He's, he's done the sequel. I can't wait uh, to see it. Man. So it was great to have him around. And, and, and we had a lot of fun with his opening dialogue, which is, are you high? <laughs> exactly. I don't think we even... Wait, do we see him at that point? No, he's still shot That's behind right. a door. Oh, so good, but that voice. Um, I've been trying to will into universe for years, the Bill and Ted 3. <laughs> my God, it has to happen. He wants it to, ha wants it to happen, I think. Oh, my goodness. It would be amazing. Um, is the is the Red Rum reference an, an actual kind of like knowing reference to The Shining? Like there's a... What? The, the red Rum is, is mentioned when they're talking about lipstick in the bathroom. Oh, right. Uh, not not intently. Oh, okay. Wow, okay. But that's very uh, nerdy of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. We're talking horror? Talking Kubrick? We're talking Red Rum? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Did you fall in love in particular with any of these supporting characters where you start to daydream about what their, what their story is beyond the frames of the film? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, else you can't love the characters. You have to kind of yeah. um, fantasize what's going to happen to them. Uh, I really liked working with Abby Lee a lot. I think that was uh, it was a pretty cool experience, also because she is a true supermodel. Right. So, you know, there were so many things that you could do with her. And um, she had no problems taking off her clothes. So it was a win-win. <laughs> Are you inspired by... Um filmmakers you meet at this point i know you mentioned uh, and i i'm a great admirer too i think you caught up with paul verhoeven in in can who's someone like dovetailing kind of our previous conversation he's somebody that i feel like was able to negotiate that bring that singularity when he did make um what could have been compromises seem, uh, seemingly when he did things like robocop and starship troopers those are great pieces of art i think as well oh, as popcorn entertainment they're beyond art they're like institutions of art yeah you know, of our culture revolution. Is, uh, is, um, is it good to, uh, I mean, do you learn anything from interactions? Do you learn anything from meeting your cinematic heroes or is it, or do you, well, it's not so much the cinematic heroes. It's more like if I meet people that I like, or I, I just usually tell them that I think they're pretty groovy. I mean, with, Paul Verhoeven and I, we were at Cannes and he was screening right after me in terms of the day after. And I went up and I said to him that I wanted him to know that I was a younger version of him. <laughs> and I wished him luck. What did he say? He gave me a kiss. It's <laughs> a beautiful thing. <laughs> And what about, I mean, you, you said some provocative things about Lars von Trier back in Cannes. What, I mean, how would you characterize your relationship, whether personally or just in terms of fellow filmmakers with Lars at this point? Well, I think he's a wonderful force of creativity. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, it doesn't change the fact that he tried to get into the pants of my wife, which was not particularly groovy when you're a raving drug addict. So. He's had some issues in the past. But he's still seemingly working through is um do you have do you have one film in mind that you want to do next that you're itching to do i don't know i think i want to do a spy movie not james bond <laughs> <laughs> how nerdy of you to ask why is that nerdy I'm trying to will it into existence will it into the universe <laughs> what what's the uh, can you say more 
te- tease me a little something? Bye. <laughs> Is Christina Hendricks the spy? Actually, that's a really good idea. I never thought of that. <laughs> uh, Gosling? I mean, that's, that's a lifelong relationship. I feel like you and Ryan are going to be working together on and off oh, for the years. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, he, we had a wonderful uh, surprise with him in, at the L.A. premiere. How's that? Well, like he, he came out and did uh, at the Hollywood Cemetery. Oh, a Q&A, right? Yeah, he came out with me and Al, and we had the, it was a... <laughs> You know, we we know each other very well, so sure. we we have a wonderful routine. <laughs> Amazing. I, f- I feel sadly because I, I I've had many great conversations with Ryan over the years, but I th- think he now blames me for the Hey Girl phenomenon because we once talked about it and it went viral in that oh, way. No. <laughs> I think I'm now the face he sees when he hears the words Hey Girl. So please, the next time you see him, can you apologize for me? It's not. My I will. Fault. I, and you didn't mean it. And I you really take didn't. It all back. I and, do. I just uh, want. I mean, I have such admiration <laughs> and love. It's all. It all comes from a good place. Um, Thank you so much for coming in today. As I said, I'm, I'm a tremendous admirer of your work, and I, I wish you all the best with this one. Um, it's a it's a special piece of work, as all of the, the films of Nicholas Refn are. Uh, the Neon Demon. Check it out, guys. Thank you. On Ron and Beverly, we like to ask our guests the tough questions. Fine. How old were you when your parents got His brother's way uh, raised him. Like nine. Did yeah. you see them date other people? Did you walk in on them with other people? I, I never married. walked in. Okay. Thank God. <laughs> Are they Thank remarried, God. each of them? No. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Were your breasts and her breasts the same size? When you saw a woman of that age without her clothes on, did you think, that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be? I was, or I did was you only think, impressed. I didn't know there were any black people in Colorado. Is that true? Yeah, it's a decent amount. Can you imagine the muscle on muscle in the bedroom for the two of them? Like, okay. very acrobatic. Okay. Listen to Rana and Beverly today on Earwolf.com, Howl, or your favorite podcast app. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.com.